the co-regulation piece is huge because, you know, it's inevitable, just like we need to come to the situations with calm and mindful way. Kids, when they are dysregulated, it's again, it's like mirror neurons, it's contagious. It, we upregulate when they're having a, a emotional reaction and it's inevitable for us to not have a reaction. So we just need to practice that as much as we can when we're not in that heated situation, but then we can bring our calm to that situation to you know, put water on the fire versus putting oil on the fire. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm really excited today to be talking with Elizabeth Sauter, and we're going to talk about how to make social and emotional learning stick. And this is a huge topic for our community of parents who have kids with ADHD, possibly also autism spectrum, um, emotional communication, emotional awareness, emotional regulation is so often a challenge for our kids and a challenge for us to really help them through that. So really excited to dive into this conversation with Elizabeth and give you guys some insights and strategies and tools to help your kids build their emotional intelligence. Thanks for being here, Elizabeth. Will you start by telling us who you are and what you do? Absolutely, Penny. Thank you so much for having me. I've followed your work for so long, and I'm just grateful to uh, be connected with you and your audience. I've been working in the field of autism for so long, and now I have my own son with ADHD, so you and I are very like-minded in in terms of our shared interest. Uh, I am a speech and language pathologist by trade, um, but I call myself more of a social cognitive specialist or social-emotional coach because I've been passionate about social-emotional learning since I started in the field and even before then. Um, I own a practice um, called Communication Works, which is here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, We used to have a center, a multidisciplinary center, and where we ran a ton of social groups. Uh, Now I am transitioned my work to mostly online, and uh, the Communication Works still does exist. Um, We have school-based contracts with a bunch of amazing rock star speech therapists here in the San Francisco Bay Area. But I've also shifted a little bit to focusing on my work for parents, as I'm one myself, um, of children with special needs. And that's my work with Make Social Learning Stick. So the website is makesociallearningstick.com. And on there, I have I blog as a mom. I call myself a mammothist because <laughs> I'm a therapist and a mom. And so I have wear both hats and share information there about that. And I've recently developed an online course for parents called Make It Stick Parenting, where I put 10 universal brain-based strategies into a pathway with Dr. Rebecca Brandstetter, who's an expert in executive functioning. And I'm really excited to share with you today that I'm launching um, the second edition of my book, Make Social, and then I've added the words emotional learning stick. So make social and emotional learning stick. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Oh, I forgot to mention the biggest part of it. I um, I grew up with a sister who's developmentally delayed. She was in Oakland Public Schools in special ed when it was the portables back then. 
Mm-hmm. She's older than I am. And, um, you know, that really spearheaded me to be curious about this field and be comfortable in this work and wanting to help others. So that I'm actually dedicating the launch of my book to her um, the week of November 12th. That's her birthday. Um, and then I have a cousin who has a son with autism. And um, when I was in graduate school, we were determining what was going on with him and help get him the services that he needs. Um, and then now I have two sons of my own. And um, as they were navigating through school and whatnot, I noticed some differences there as well um, as I was watching their milestones. And so my older son has, um, was struggling a lot, especially in early elementary school. And he is now diagnosed with ADHD, learning disabilities, and anxiety, and he has a full IEP. He's in high school now in his uh, junior year. And then my younger son, too, has some challenges with um, dysgraphia and emotional regulation and some attentional stuff as well. So I am not just a therapist. I am living it. It's a life endeavor for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of similarities in common with our boys, I think. Um Let's start, I think, by talking about what does it mean, social and emotional learning? What do you mean by those phrases? Well, so social is just, you know, anything that we're doing when we're interacting with people, you know, what we do, what we say, how we're thinking about social situations. Um, And oftentimes, you know, they're called social skills, you know, the handshake, the high five, the eye contact, all the what we call in the field is pragmatic language, um, the rules of language, what you do, the output. Um, but there's so much more to that piece of it in terms of social competence and social thinking, which is Michelle Garcia Winner's work of really being able to understand that other people have thoughts that are different than yours. It's also called theory of mind. Um, and so that's like a way bigger picture. And when you think of even the, even the social skills and the social competence and social thinking, um, you really can't separate out the emotional piece of it because, first of all, you come to the situation with your own emotions, whether you're regulated or dysregulated or up or down, your levels of alertness or energy, um, and that is, affects how you're able to interact yourself and think about the situation. But then there's the thoughts of other people and achieving your goal in that situation, which is the executive function piece. And so if you're not able to adjust pertaining to the situation at hand, you're not going to be successful. You're going to have people feeling uncomfortable about um, your emotional state. And it's going to be challenging to have that be a positive outcome for what you want it to be. So they're both like intertwined in so many ways. Leah Kuypers, who's developed the zones of regulation, who I work really closely with, she and I used to talk a lot together and we kind of coined the phrase of social regulation because it's everything combined, the emotions and the social piece. And, you know, you have to be able to read somebody else's emotional state and also be able to talk about your own. So there's so much involved, as you can see, it's vast and complex. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of times for parents with kids with ADHD, we think about the social piece It's more obvious, I guess, when our kids are struggling socially. We don't think as much about the emotional skills. I think we often take for granted that that just develops naturally. And for some, it does. But for our kids with developmental delays, it is often something that they're really lagging behind in. Um, I have worked with a lot of parents through parent coaching lately who come to me with struggles about behaviors, 
But what we figure out is that they're really triggered by a lack of emotional awareness or lack of emotional communication skills. And so when you can't get your your message across in a more acceptable way, then behavior becomes involved, right? Right. So there's so much to unpack there, but um, behavior is communication. And yep. I worked in the field for many, many years. Right out of grad school, I worked at a school for severely impaired children with autism and behaviors. And I worked alongside behavior consultants and I learned so much. Um, but that was our big mantra, all behavior is communication. And so the output of what you're seeing on the outside and the um, well-known now um, that we've been talking about in the field for so many years is the iceberg theory, where and it's actually research-based now by Mona Delahook. Um, and so you see the tip of the iceberg on the outside, which is the behavior. And that could be a child who's withdrawing in our course, uh, Make It Stick Parenting, we call that turtling because you get like in your shell or your uh, bigger output, you know, those big emotions that you see on the output. And that's like, we call it porcupining. Um, and mm. we train parents how to be the wise owl yeah. <laughs> and to manage these situations and to lean in and be curious about that behavior that you see on the outside, that tip of the iceberg, what is going on there? And, and instead of, you know, getting triggered, which it does trigger us, of course, when we see dysregulation, um, to get curious and lean in to discover what is going on. Is it perspective taking? Is, like you said, is it um, language processing? Is it, you know, they're not able to read nonverbal social cues? Do they not understand the hidden rules of, of all these various situations? Or, you know, is it executive functioning? Like they don't, they can't stop before they say something or, or um, plan ahead and think or uh, retain information about working memory about what they've learned in the past. There's so much to unpack there in terms of those lagging skills. And once we can identify what those lagging skills are, then we as parents, or you can find a specialist to help bring up those lagging skills. And I just want to say one last thing about that, because you hit it, the nail on the head, is that um, these are developmental skills. So just like, you know, we have a child who might not be able to have the physical um, mobility, or maybe they have vision impairments. And those are more obvious, right? Because they might have be limping, or they might be in a wheelchair, or they might have glasses. And you would never ask somebody with a visual impairment to, you know, stand in the back of a classroom, take off their glasses and read the board. But we're expecting so much from our kids who have social and emotional delays. But these are all developmental skills that happen over a period of time. And we have to be clued into that and realize what those milestones are, and then meet the children where they're at. You know, there are there's a whole developed milestone on um, or capacity for being able to have emotional literacy and emotional vocabulary. There's a whole research on that. And if you know your child only is able to express happy, mad, sad, well, then they're not going to be able to tell you when they're jealous or overwhelmed. And so we need to look at where they're at developmentally and then figure out how we can boost those skills to help them so that they can then communicate in a way that's more adapted and expected for the situation. Again, behavior is communication. So if they have the ways to communicate in ways that are going to keep themselves and other people feeling comfortable, then you will see less of those behavioral challenges. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought up only seeing happy, mad, sad, because I see that so often in kids where they, they're not seeing all of these feelings that fall in the range of happy, all of these feelings that fall in the range of sad, 
and and the feelings that even go between those zones, when they can't kind of tease those out, then everything is intense, right? If if there's only one happy, it's this intense happy. If there's only one angry, it's this intense angry. And it's not always to scale for the situation. You know, we see our kids get so intense and and really kind of blow up out of what we would feel like is appropriate or scaled for that situation. And we can help them with that. And this is something that I didn't know when my son was young. I didn't know really anything about emotional intelligence and emotional regulation and and the fact that that was a developmental skill and it was something that I really needed to be helping him with um, because no one in our realm of ADHD team said anything to me about it. And I, you know, so I just didn't know. And I think that it's really, really valuable at any point, obviously, in life we can teach this, but if we're teaching it when they're really young, it's so much more helpful, right? We're catching it earlier and making a, a positive impact earlier. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that it's never too early because we can be talking about it, we can be modeling it, and we can work on it. You know, it starts with ourselves. And that's, you know, the pathway is definitely us in terms of self-care and self-compassion and the whole thing that comes along with acceptance of a child that's not meeting the milestones and um, maybe a different learner. But I also um, want to say that there's a lot that's being done in terms of training teachers and educators in terms of supporting students. They have IEP goals and they have, you know, social groups and whatever it might be. But I really feel like where we are not doing enough work is with supporting parents. And, you know, then parents hear about, you know, their kids learning all these curriculum, curricula out there and they feel overwhelmed, which is the last thing we want parents to do is feel overwhelmed. And so I've really made it my mission. And I think you have too, in terms of making it super simple for parents to just embrace um, what they're already doing and not feel like they have to add in more. It's They can sprinkle it and have it be more of an add on to their daily routines and activities. And that's, you know, what I've put together in make it, make social and emotional learning stick so that they can feel more confident so that they can feel calm and then connected with their child, which is the goal overall, right? Yeah, and I love how in the book you have all of these little um, activities or ways of integrating this social and emotional learning in regular daily life. Yeah, so what I've done is, um, so this all stemmed from the work that I was doing at the Center Communication Works back in the days, and it wasn't too long ago, actually, but now I'm a consultant there, but we had a ton of social groups, and we were seeing the kids, you know, once a week for 45 minutes to an hour, and our model was always to train the parents on what we taught the kids, you know, like we can teach the kids all about flexible thinking and about being a social detective and about the zones of regulation and whatnot. But if we are not teaching that to the parents, there's no common language and um, we can't create a culture of building social emotional learning. So that's why I um, started to blog and started to write about this and train the parents as well. And we pulled them into the group to train them. And so in the book, I've really, um, it's not a read cover to cover. It's, you know, a little bit of an overview. There's a big graph in the beginning, a chart that shows, you know, if you're struggling in this area, then this activity might work. But the rest of the book is divided into home, community, 
holidays and special events. And now I've added a whole section on bridging um, home and school to, you can just flip to any page and open up, you know, a context in that situation to be able to just have an idea for teaching social emotional skills. Like for example, I just opened to page 21, it's start the day. And it talks about how to do a body check. And that's just how, you know, check in with your body and do a body scan and see how you're feeling that level of alertness and arousal. Um, Kelly Mahler actually is one of the contributors to the book. I have 10 um, contributors to the book, leading experts, Sarah Ward, Michelle Garcia winner, Rebecca Brandsetter, Kelly Mahler, um, Pamela Wolfberg, lots of different ex- experts, and I'm excited to share their work as well, collaboration. But so the body scan is, you know, something that you can do in the morning to just see how your child is feeling and do that check-in with that emotional regulation. And then that's when you can talk about that labeling, okay, you're feeling a little bit, um, your stomach is tight, hmm, are you, or you have a knot in your stomach. Is that anxiety or is that hunger? You know, what is that? That's that interception work that we work on. And then also starting the day, there's um, being a weather detective. So when your child says, what should I wear today? Instead of saying, oh, it looks like it's going to rain, grab your rain jacket. You can say, hmm, let's look outside and see. What do you think? What do you see? And right there, that's social inferencing and predicting and problem solving. And that's all interrelated to social emotional learning. So there's activities throughout the whole book, but I um, wanted to make it simple for parents and not an add on, but more of an add in. So when your child does ask you what, you know, what should you wear or what's for dinner, you can do that detective work versus just being their prefrontal cortex yourself and not building those skills. So that's why it's called make social learning stick so that we can have the activities for us as parents to build that confidence so that we know what to do and say in these situations, but then help our child to make those skills stick. And I love that it's very integrated in daily life. It makes it so much easier to work on skills when it's just part of our daily life. I talk a lot to parents about talking through your thought processes, your problem-solving processes, things like that with your kids, leading them to say, oh, here's an idea that we could do to solve this problem, or you know, asking them questions so that they come up with the answer instead of just telling them, what the answer is or telling them what to do. Um, An example I use all the time, and I think I used in my own online course, is the shoes in the middle of the kitchen floor. So if my son came in and took off his shoes in the middle of the kitchen floor and then left the room, I could say, hey, come get your shoes and put them in the spot by the door where we keep the shoes. Or I could say, hey, buddy, I noticed that your shoes are in the kitchen floor. What do you think needs to happen. And it's just so much more valuable. And yes, it takes a little more time. But when we're teaching skills that our kids really need and really need help with, and we're just making it part of the day to day, it's so much more well received from them, especially when your kids are teenagers, right? Because they do not want us to tell them what to do or how to do it. So, but it can just really be part of anything and all of our interactions with our kids, even from really young age. Oh my gosh. Um, I could go on and on and um, we're so on the same page here and we have a free parent training on, and they actually have some free scripts of the things that you're talking about here. And 
Um, my favorite one, because my kids, I don't know what it is, but I guess their feet like change temperatures all the time, get hot and cold, but there's socks all over this house. <laughs> it's like my thing is like socks. And so um, I watch my tone and, you know, I take my own one breath for me, one breath for you before I say, and my whole thing is, hey, notice some socks. What's your plan? My biggest thing with my teenage boys is what's your plan? And yes, and I could absolutely say, pick up these socks, put them in your room, or are they dirty, you know? And that's us being their prefrontal cortex. Exactly. Doing it for them, telling them what to do. But if we ask those open-ended, those declarative language questions, we are opening up their brains for turning on their prefrontal cortex and being a problem solver, a social thinker, an emotional regulator themselves uh, so yes, I love those simple phrases. They're so hard to remember, but those are the things that we want to, and you are on the same mission as I am, empower our parents to just have those embedded and get used to saying those things in a positive, compassionate way mm-hmm. and build the skills so that we're not continuously needing to do everything for them. So yes, I 100% agree. Yeah, and if you want your child to be independent at some point in their life, you need to be doing these things. If you do everything for them, they do not learn how to do for themselves. And for me, with my oldest child, that lesson probably really didn't strike me until she was a teenager. And one day I was like, oh my gosh, she asked me to do everything. Why is she not doing things herself? She's perfectly capable of doing these things. Why is she asking me to do these things? Well, because I always did them for her and I didn't teach her that she really could do things for herself. And I I just didn't, you know, I was a much more independent spirit as a teenager. I couldn't wait to drive. I couldn't wait to leave home. I couldn't wait to do, you know, all of these really independent things. And so I really took for granted that everybody isn't like that. You know, I just assumed that every teenager wanted those things. And that's not the case. And I think it's especially not the case with this generation, but that's that's another whole conversation as well. And um, actually something that Jeffrey Kranzler and I touched on in his podcast episode earlier as well. But, you know, if we don't teach these skills, if we don't foster independence early, our kids will just still rely on us. And when we're talking about kids who have executive functioning challenges, We're talking about our 30-something-year-old kid still needing us to help them balance their checkbook, clean their apartment, you know, all of these things that we just take for granted and we really need to be very mindful as their children and they're in our homes that we have to foster that independence. It isn't just a natural thing for everyone, a natural development. 100%. And I... Um, I have so much to say on this as well. Uh, I I coach a lot of teens and young adults, actually. And um, it's one of my favorite things to do. I mean, I love working with all ages and I love working with parents as well. But, you know, I'm focused on the teens because I have them living in my house now. And it's, you know, such a push-pull, right? Because Mm -hmm. they say, you know, leave me alone. I don't need any help. I can do it. I got it covered. Or, you know, back off, mom. You're so overprotective. I'm never going to blah, blah, blah. So they, you know, want their freedom and their independence. And then when it comes to, can you make me breakfast? You know, (laughs) yesterday um, we, and, and we're busy, right? So sometimes it's just easier to do things and just get it done. But here's a perfect example. Um, My son had to go to a doctor's appointment and um, I've been so 
busy with, you know, getting my book, all the proofing and all the details and working a lot. And so I've decided to do a reframe and say like, A, you know, you know where are you, mom? We, let's, we want to, they love to go catch Pokemon with me. I do the social fake and, and catch Pokemon with them because it's one of the mm-hmm. ways that I can connect with them and it's kind of fun. Um, and so they've been wanting to do that a little bit and I haven't been as available and and I feel that I have that mom guilt, you know? So, but then I said, you know, it's good for them to be able to, you know, deal with some um, disappointment and then also some resiliency in managing the breakfast. And my son had to go to this doctor's appointment. So there was this online portal and there was some paperwork to fill out. And I'm like, oh, I don't have time for that. So I just, I said, hey, you can do this. And so he actually figured it out a little bit. He, and then when we got to the doctor's office, it was filled out. He only did like his name and his date or birthday or something. <laughs> and so she's like, you were supposed to get here an hour and a half or half an hour ahead of time to fill it. He's like, well, I thought I filled it out. So all of these things are good, you know, resiliency lessons learned. And um, for him to, even though he was balking at having to do it, you know, he's learning and by mistakes or successes and then feeling like he can launch into doing more and um, feel proud of his accomplishments as well. So um, absolutely, we need to be empowering them and coaching them. I mean, with our children with social emotional lagging skills, there are ways that we can coach them though, because we do need to scaffold you know, that building and then take the scaffolding down so that they can stand on its own. And, and that's all the things like you figure out where they are lagging, have lagging skills, you know, is it with understanding hidden rules? Do they need those to be explicitly taught? Is it the voc, you know, emotional vocabulary? Do they need to expand on that? Do they need to be able to understand to read other people's emotions? Um, there's so much and that there's so many simple ways to do that in a fun way to embrace these teachable moments. Yeah. And I like that you brought up scaffolding too, because we're not talking about letting go of your seven-year-old and saying, you need to do everything for yourself. We're talking about age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate for your child, independence with boundaries. Um, I often talk about giving measured choices. Do you want to drink your juice with your lunch out of your frozen sippy cup or your frozen cup or your, you know, Cinderella cup or whatever? Do you want to wear this shirt today or that shirt today? So you're not giving them free reign. You're still supporting and having some control over what is appropriate and what happens. But by giving them that even tiny sense that they have some control is huge, huge for behavior, huge for your relationship with them, for so many things. It's really beneficial. But even, you know, as we're talking about fostering independence, that still comes back to social and emotional learning. There's a lot of social and emotional learning in fostering independence, right? You know, with your son and breakfast and completing his forms when he got to the office and they weren't so happy because he hadn't done it and he didn't get there early, you know, that was a social confrontation of sorts that he had to learn how to navigate, right? Absolutely. And those are happening every day, all day. And, you know, you have to figure out that balance of meeting them where they're at developmentally figuring out what the lagging skills are that they need help with to boost them up and not making it too much of a leap so they feel stressed out and overwhelmed. But we do need to like get in that sweet spot to support their needs um, and so that they can grow bit by bit, step by step, and be able to you know be as independent as they possibly can. 
And we talk a lot about co-regulation in the course as well and how we as parents can model and, and mirror and support them. That's a whole other topic as well in terms of being able to be, have ourselves be in a place of regulation. But yeah, so to meet them where they're at and model and scaffold and help them build those skills. Co-regulation is a really big part of it, though. I mean, it's a really important part because we're teaching them when, when we are regulated, we are teaching them and modeling for them appropriate ways to interact socially, appropriate ways to handle um, your emotions, maybe reading body language and tone of voice, you know, all those nonverbal social cues. They're getting all of that from us when we are kind of really on track. <laughs> we're on target with our goal of staying calm and we're co-regulating and and it's so helpful in in a myriad of ways. Again, it's not just, oh, I'm going to be calm and it's going to help my child calm. But there's so many other layers of things that are coming out of that and that are developing from us better managing those interactions and being an appropriate co-regulation tool, I guess I would say. Yeah, so this is a big part of my own journey. Um, I learned about mindfulness about seven years ago through um, mindful schools here in the Bay Area, Oakland, and went through a training and we started implementing it with our students because I think it's a big missing part of the field. You know, like we teach all these social skills and executive function and whatnot. But if we're not able to like pause before we react, you know, like you can, our kids can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. And it's because they're not pausing to see what's going on around them or how they're feeling in the moment to be able to figure out which tools to need, they need, which is the tools that we've taught them. So mindfulness is something that has been a big part of my world for a long time, you know, and implementing that in my own life. And then also with my own children and with the clients that I work with. But the co-regulation piece is huge because, you know, it's inevitable, just like we need to come to the situations with calm and mindful way. Our kids when they are dysregulated, it again, it's a mirror neurons, it's contagious. It we upregulate when they're having an emotional reaction, and it's inevitable for us to not have a reaction. So, we just need to practice that as much as we can when we're not in that heated situation. But then we can bring our calm to that situation to, you know, put water in the fire versus putting oil on the fire. And there's a lot to unpack here. And this is why in our Make It Stick Parenting course, we started it out of the pathways, not just a magic bullet that's going to fix. I don't, nobody needs fixing. I didn't mean to use that word, actually. That's a huge trigger yeah. for me because we all are accepting here in neurodivergent thinking and learning and being in the world. We all are on some sort of, so there's no fixing. Um, but I'm just saying in those situations that are uncomfortable that you know a child might not want to um, be feeling that way and, you know, might be uncomfortable for us. Um, we can calm. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do to stay calm and to help diffuse that situation. Um, and so we started it out with self-care for parents and we have a huge, uh, we call it the wise model, um, which is wisdom, intentionality, self-care, and then the everyday strategies can be layered on, which is all the things in my book. And I explained the wise model in my book as well, but we have a huge journal for um, self-care, um, which actually I will be giving out um, a bonus of the journal during the launch week of my book. And so um, I'm happy to share that as well. But 
there's a free training that we have right now that when, and in our course, we have a, a self-care assessment to see where you are on this, because it really does have to start there because you, as we're talking about co-regulation, it starts with us. And if we're putting oil on that fire or, you know, using the terms and you said, you know, this way versus telling your kid to do this, barking at them versus getting their prefrontal cortex involved, it can really change the situation. And so that's why it does need to start there with the co-regulation and it can make a huge difference. A huge difference. Yeah. I like that you were used the word contagious. (laughs) <laughs> because yeah. it, you know, our our moods and energies are very contagious to to people around us, and it is a biological thing. It's a physiological thing with our autonomic nervous system. It's not that oh, mom is grumpy, so I'm going to be grumpy. It's not a choice. It's it's truly almost this contagion of what is happening. It spreads throughout everyone yep. around you. That's the mirror neurons and, you know, our calm can create their calm or our dysregulation can create their dysregulation. And, you know, we talk a little bit about this in the neuroanatomy, neuroscience part of it is, you know, we are looking to increase that oxytocin and we call it absorb the oxytocin and calm the cortisol because you can do that. And there are studies shown on how, you know, I mean, we, everybody can feel it. You can't deny it when there's somebody who's, even if it's hyping them up and dancing around, it's like, you, it's contagious. The mirror neurons are there. And so you know, like, if I change my tone of voice and I'm calm like this versus like, oh, Penny, I'm so excited to talk to you and whatnot. I mean, it's just changes the energy of our conversation and the dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, parents out there just, you know, do a little trial and see how calming yourself can calm your kids. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's really remarkable. Um, I wouldn't say that it's magic, but it's close to magic. It really is so effective uh, versus what happens when you mirror their intensity and you give it back. It's so much of a different outcome. You know, it's it's night and day. There's a wide divide between you being calm and what happens then with your child and you matching their intensity and what that outcome is. And it's really very close to magical, I will say. It was a big shift in our house when I realized that, you know, when he yells at me and I yell back, what am I teaching him? I'm teaching him that when you're when you're frustrated with someone, you yell at them. That's not what I want to teach him, right? Well, I'm yelling because I want him to stop yelling, but that doesn't make any sense. And for kids on the spectrum, things really need to make sense a lot of the times, you know? But it's just, it's remarkable, the difference in just being that calm anchor for your kids. It really does make a big shift in the dynamic and in your relationship. Again, so much of this comes back to your parent-child relationship as well. Um, We've covered so many different topics in this conversation, and we've barely scratched the surface, I know. There's so much more to be learned in this area I, I definitely encourage parents to pick up your book and to have it as a reference. You know, it, it's structured for them so that they can use it as a reference in different situations so that they can incorporate the social and emotional learning. And I think it's amazing. Anything else you wanted to make sure that we add before we wrap up? Oh, we covered so much, Penny. I mean, we're going to have to have another conversation, I think, because it's just... yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this and I'm excited to share 
my new edition of my book, Make Social Emotional Learning Stick, and all the free resources we have over on the website, Make Social Learning Stick. I have a free calendar that I give out. And once a month, we do um, calendar theme based and interviews with leading experts. And um, I cannot wait to watch your summit and, you know, just stay closely connected with you and your audience because this work is so needed and it's a passion and purpose for me in life. Yeah, I'm so glad that that we had you on, that you shared some of your time and your insights and wisdom with us. For everyone listening, you can get links to lots of resources that Elizabeth has mentioned, as well as links to her website and social media by going to the show notes. And the show notes for this episode are at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 111 for episode 111. And with that, we will end and I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.